Thank you, Wes. Ben, always good to hear you crank it up over there, man. Thank you. Well, hey, it's good to have you here. I just opened my Bible and I have a bunch of Aldi coupons, so you never know what you're going to find in there. So <laughs> I don't know how to just get here. But anyway, uh, um, well, hey, uh, good morning, and it is, uh, it's, it's an awesome privilege to be able to keep the, the series rolling in the book of John, and in John chapter 2. And like Pastor Jack mentioned, uh, whether you're a member or not, we'd love to have you for our meeting at, well, it'll be around noonish. you know. We'll probably give the second service like a five-minute run to the restroom or something. And then we'll, uh, we'll reconvene in here. So we'll be going over all kind of, all kind of um, things. So anyway, we'd love to have you here, be a, part of, be a part of that meeting. So if you would, turn with me in the, in the, in the Bible to the book of John, as you go to John chapter 2. We're going to be covering quite a bit of material today, quite a bit of, of scripture, but there's a common thought I have and, uh, and on why I'm combining the, the, the two particular stories about the wedding in Cana, so turning water into wine, and then also Jesus cleansing the temple. So these are typically two different sermons. But there's one, and, and I, the more I kept trying to separate the two, kind of separate the two, this one common thread kept coming through, kept walking through. So, as we go to John chapter two, um, let me just let me do this. Let me just pray for me real quick, and then uh, and then we'll just jump in this. Father, we thank you for today. Jesus, please, um, Lord, clear my mind. Let me speak clearly, and let me just uh, do justice to this message. Open our minds, open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want you to see that in John chapter 2, there is, a, there is a wedding. A wedding is about to occur. This wedding is, is, uh, is something that's a big deal. Not like, I know how many of you guys, you probably go to weddings a lot. I, I've got my 350th wedding I'm officiating coming up soon. And... I've been to so many weddings. I hear music, and it makes me think of the of dance of the dances, the whatever that I have to listen to all the time. And I literally cringe if I hear. There's certain smells of flowers. There's it, there's so much anxiety. They say people that are in, in first responder business and in that have like you know uh, you have uh, adrenaline that runs through your life. And you have to work through that. I have anxiety that runs through my life of weddings that uh, that I have to work through. And uh, and so in this particular case, this is not a short wedding. This is a big wedding. Weddings would go on typically for three days. Some weddings, depending on the wealth of the family, would go on for a week. So I'll explain why in just a little bit. So let's go ahead and look at John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And here we go. This is what we, well, a lot of us have grown up hearing this all our lives. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So first, let's just break this down a little bit. What hour is he talking about? This is the hour of the crucifixion. All uh, all commentaries would point to that. That is the hour he's referring to. Remember, he's working on the element of time. Come from heaven, not working with the dimension of time. Now he has it. Notice the term woman. 
notice this. This is, a, this is interesting. When you look at the word, the term woman, this isn't a real term of endearment, is it? I mean, you think this is not something you would answer your mom, woman. But in this particular case, this is not derogatory. This is not a sense of, this is uh, the best I can get it from any kind of reading I could do. Would, this would be the equivalent of ma'am in the South, ma'am. I mean, you would, you would, it, it's, a, it's a term of respect but it's very important that we see the dialogue going on here. When he says woman, he's now assigning her and he different roles. He is now saying, he is saying to the public at this point, you are not my mother. He does not say mom. He says woman. He looks at her as a woman as he would look at any of us as a, as a man or woman to say, you are in need of salvation. He says, woman. And so, I mean, this is a, it's, it's a big interaction here. Now, it's not a, like I said, it's not a, a term that's demeaning. It's not a term that's insulting to the role. If you remember, Jesus is, is, uh, is on the cross. He uses this description when he looks at, at John in, in, in the interaction. He says, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. So in the, the same word is used to, to, to say, woman, look at me. In this, in, in, later in the crucifixion. Here's a great example of two conversations. A mother to her son and a sinner, or and a savior to a sinner. Keep in mind, a mother to a son is talking. A savior is looking at a sinner. And they're having a conversation. And sometimes we ask ourselves, um, why would she? Uh, why would we have this semi-public miracle, the first one, be indicated at a wedding, turning water into wine? Because there's a whole lot of symbolism here. In this particular case, he's responding. He says, "My, my, my hour is not yet come. What does this have to do with me?" He says, "What does this have to do with me?" And now, I want you to bear with me, because when I make this comparison, I don't want you to think I'm comparing Mary to demons. But I want you to see if you can track with me on this thought. The only other times this terminology is used, which is, what does this have to do with me, is spoken of when demons speak to Jesus. And what, what I'm trying to point out here, what I'm trying to make clear is this. Jesus is looking at his mother, and he says, Mom... What does this have to do with me and my gifting? What does this have to do with me? Do you remember there are times Jesus uh, would, would interact with demons and they would yell out, what do, you, what do you have to do with me? What are you doing with me? Get out, of, get, get out of my sight. Get out of my world. Here is a classic, incredible verse. I mean, I have skipped this verse so many times. Powerful thought. Here's an earthly conversation and a spiritual conversation going on at the same time. I hope I'm not screwing this up because this is, this is big. This is big. This is one of those things that hits you at three in the morning and you just can't believe what you just read. Earthly conversation. Jesus is talking and he says, uh, or the mother's talking and she said, Mary says, please, can you just, can, can you help? And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? She has seen things in all these years. This is the semi-public miracle. She knows what he is capable of doing. He is now the father of the family. Joseph, we believe, has died in this particular time after we saw Jesus as a child up till now. And so she has gone to him. 
for earthly needs, but she has, you know, she has seen some things. So she walks up to him at this party and she says, you know, um, they have no wine. There's no wine. The prodding of a Jewish mother. If you've ever been around Jewish culture, you cannot sit at a table without, oh no, you're going to have something else. Oh no, what's the matter with you? I mean, the, the prodding nature, they, they have no wine. And he's looking at her like, woman, this isn't for me. But every time you see these kind of discussions, again, there's a a spiritual discussion here. Again, I keep wanting to reiterate this. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mom, you can't ask me to do anything. You can't ask me here. A lot of theologians believe he was surprised by this conversation. He's startled. Mom, why would you be doing this? He is, he's gently stiff-arming his mother. What does this have to do with me? But Jesus is concerned with one relationship starting from this moment on. One. One. Now, I want you to look at this verse. John chapter 5, verse 17. Watch this. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I am working. All he is concerned about is doing his father's business. Jesus at this point is concerned with one focal point. Which is why I'm going to bring us into the, the, the end of John chapter 2. And talk about what happens at the temple. He is focused on one thing. His father's business. That's it. And so all the time, you can see his mother is asking, right? We're going to see Satan is going to try to tempt. We see people want to make him king. We see people want to gather around him and distract him. He says, I'm focused. Which is why when they try to make him king, he gets in a boat and he, goes, he just goes off to the other side. He tells his disciples, let's go. At this moment, you can see the beginning of these spiritual conversations dealing with earthly surroundings. Woman, what has this to do with me? So, Jesus had to work not only against the assumption that he was everybody's in his family, but that his family was all his. I mean, people would have thought, oh, well, you're, man, you're, you're the family of Jesus. I mean, you've got to have the in, insight on everything. Watch what happens in John chapter 5, no, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 11, two verses, 27 and 28. Have it on the screens here. Watch as a woman says, man, it must be a blessing to be a member of Jesus' family. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Is that remarkable? Look at, look, look at Mark chapter 3. Watch this. Watch these verses unfold. Verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers, they're outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a profound statement. This is remarkable. This is for you and I. Oftentimes, if, if a, a woman were to read these things, it, from an earthly standpoint, as a non-believer, this would be hard to read. Are you telling me he had disdain for the position of mother? No, absolutely not. What he is trying to say is in his role as Christ, he is saying to you, 
Every one of you are my family. Do you know what a powerful thought that is as we walk into this room, into an office building on Fletcher and Dale Mabry, and we walk in here and we would wonder, I wonder how he identifies us. If Jesus were to introduce us to anyone, it would be, here is my mother and my sister and my brother. You mean to tell me there's no ranking of a clique here? There's no upper echelon here, there, there, there's no inside group. There's no cool clique. You mean to tell me there's not that group of leaders that runs everything? You know the ones with all the power and the money, right? How about the ones with all the religion, right? What about that? What about all those who keep all the rules and the laws? No. I tell you who is my brother, who is my sister. It is the believer of God. So we think about this and I ask you this. If you're a believer in Christ, do you recognize this is you? This is you. It is the followers, not family, that have a saving relationship. Which brings me to this point. Jesus said, if you come to me, it will be by faith, not family. If you come to me, it's going to be by faith, not by family. He's going to now take this from the family unit to outside the Jewish unit to outside the... He's going to take this continually on, which brings us to this. Translated today, if you come to Jesus, it will be by faith, not by culture, not by tradition. Which is why so many of my friends have churches in the deep south in the Bible Belt. And surprisingly, it told me, as a matter of fact, Brian Stebbins told me this, you know, your son-in-law, Pat and Hugh over there. They, we were at, I was in North Carolina speaking at their student conference and years ago. And he and his pastor, we went out to lunch. And were, I mean, a small rural town in North Carolina. And what they said was very profound. They said, you know, it's so hard to minister here. And I'm thinking, What? This is the world of yes ma'ams, no ma'ams, sweet tea, cornbread, and you go to church on Sunday, right? This, how could it possibly be? He said, no, there is just nothing but traditionalist faith here. You have people that say everybody can, everybody can give the sinner's response. Everybody can give an answer to say, oh yeah, I've received Christ as my Savior. He said, there's so much tradition we have to walk through. So much culture that we have to work through. And I'm thinking in this particular case, it shows us, well, man, Jesus is not saying, mom, you're, you're of a lesser role. He's saying this, you are of a great role. He's bringing us into his family. So let's pick up with the rest of the verses in, here in verse, chapter, uh, in verse 6. Walking through this wedding in Cana. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars of water, and they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So, again, you, you, you have this picture. Mary walks up to Jesus. They're out of wine. There, there is no wine. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me, woman? What does this have to do with me? And finally, she just turns away and walks away. Tells the servants to do what he says. In this particular case, Jesus looks over and what he's about to look at, he is looking at huge barrels. This is not like, oh, there's a pitcher of water and it's poured into wine. These are barrels. These are wash barrels. These are purification barrels. This is what you would have done to walk in and cleanse yourself. This is waste water. 
But the people would view this as purification. This is what you want to be pure for religious ceremonies. For walking into a home, this is the purity. Do you know how many times I've looked at the scripture and wondered, why, why would he use that water? The fact is, when Jesus looks at this, he says, there's a parallel. All these, all these Jewish purification rituals, they're over. They're done. How many times does he, does he look at these, at, the, at these particular things in this wedding of Cana and you see the symbolism here? He says, it's over. Jesus was not impressed by religious rituals. Cleansing buckets, I'm over them. Those are done. I'm now here. I am the one that makes you pure. None of this water. He says, just pull it out of that water. He gives it to the master of the, fe- of the feast. Now keep in mind, the bridegroom has run out of water. The bridegroom, the groom one waiting on the bride, was responsible for buying the wine. A wedding was a big deal. Not because of the length of days, it's because think of how hard the people worked. The people worked in the fields. They had a mundane life. They had a life where it was just hard. A wedding was a break. A wedding was anticipated. Everybody knew each other. This is Cana. We're talking population no more, no way than 500 people. No way, much less. Everybody knew each other. Everybody had looked forward to this. Everybody had thought they earned a spot and a place. Jesus knew all these people. Jesus not only came in with with his disciples, but his mom, they knew these people. And now they're out of wine. Jesus says to the host of the party, the master of the party, the maitre d', he says, I want you to take the wine, I want you to take the wine to him. So, we mentioned a little bit of this verse last week, but I want, I want you to see this, some of the last recorded words of John the Baptist. Not John that wrote this, but look at John chapter 3, verse 29 through 30. This is what John the Baptist is saying here. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. This bridegroom is not going to fail. He's not going to fall short. And he's certainly going to stand in and say, I'm going to show you that we have wine. So think about this. Jesus looks at these purification barrels, about 150 gallons of water. He looks at this and he says, these aren't needed anymore. These aren't needed anymore. As a matter of fact, I want you to use this water. And then he, say, he looks, it looks over and sees that the bridegroom, this, this, this man who's responsible for giving this wine, he cannot fulfill this promise. And so why does he cave in? Why does he give in? It wasn't because of a pleading mother's case. Only it's because he looks around and thinks, I have an opportunity to show something here. That you don't need this purification anymore. These water buckets aren't necessary anymore. I want you to also see that this wine that I'm going to offer you, my outpouring, this sacrificial wine, will never run out. I will not run out. I will not run short like he did. And so this magnificent picture of eradication of religious symbolism, this, in this symbolism to show a never-ending flow of a sacrificial wine, is all of a sudden just coming to a head right here. This life-giving wine that Jesus has provided for our life will never run out. Look with me at verse 9. Keep going. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. By the way, 
how do you think he would react if he did know where it came from? So he doesn't know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast, he calls over the bridegroom, verse 10, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. Did you catch that part? Watch this. And he manifested his glory. This was a moment that he showed his glory. He showed it off right here. And his disciples believed in him. So watch this. He manifests his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You're going to see that pattern going back and forth. I'll show you in a minute. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother, with his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Ariel, would you go back to verse 11? I want you to look at this again. He manifests his glory and that his disciples believed. You are going to see this constantly throughout the Gospels. He manifests his glory and they believed. You see, here's, here's, here's a thought I have in my mind. When the glory of Jesus is revealed, faith is born. You see that so many times. When you see the glory of who he is, faith is born. And then there becomes a pattern. Here is the pattern. See if you don't notice this consistency throughout any of the Gospels. Watch this pattern. Here it is. Where there is glory, there is faith. Okay, we know that. We see that. Where there is glory, wow, there's incredible wonders, you often see faith. Next, where there is faith, you will see his glory. How many times did Jesus look at people and say, Do you want to, now that you've accepted me, you can't believe the things you are going to see. Remember what he told to, the, to, to one of the apostles. The apostles looked at him and said, you are the son of God. He said, you're impressed with that? You're impressed that you, I saw you? you? Wait till you see what happens. And he looks at a Samaritan woman at the well. Your faith, wait till you see what is going to happen. You see the, the pattern here. Where there is glory, there is faith. Where there is faith, you will see his glory. It's a constant pattern. It keeps working. And so we see this incredible story, and then we keep thinking. Now keep, keep in mind, stay with me as we go to the next, the next story. Jesus is focused on one thing. Whose business is he focused on? His father's. His father's business is the only business at hand. We saw in the, his first miracle, public miracle, was around those he loved. Around those he loved. And before we go any further, again, especially especially those of you who have struggled in your journey of your family. I know of some that will be in the next hour, and I can guarantee you they will need to understand these verses. That no matter where you come from and think, man, this is my lineage. This is where I have, this is the, the family shame that's been put on me. This is the family hurt that's been put on me. Jesus says this, I am your family. You are my family now. There is no family hindrance to coming to Jesus. There is no, you're too ugly, you're too poor, you're, you're not educated. There is none of that that comes to the cross anymore. The cross has come to you. A very powerful thought to say, you are my brother and my sister and my mother. What a profound statement. So when we look at each other and say, you know, we're children of God, a saved men and women. The fact is, it's not just us looking at each other as brother and sister. He is looking at us as you are my brother and my sister and my mother. What a powerful statement when we talk about grafted into the family of God. 
So now Jesus has made clear the symbolism of the, of the water barrels, right? The purification of the barrels. I've given you a picture of I am going to be the bridegroom one day. The coming for the, the bride, the, the church. I am going to show you that my wine, my outpouring of, of blood never wears out. So when you hear that term, we are washed in the blood of the lamb. Of the lamb you can sense it now. You can sense the importance of what it means to be cleansed by Him. No more purification buckets. No more. No more talk of this, we run out of things. And now he ventures into Jerusalem. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And this is not a new thing. Josh, you've been to Israel, and you... We're telling me stories one time that you said you saw people in the market. There were just, I think people were selling things everywhere. You walked in this one area you thought it was going to be kind of like, oh, this will be special. And there's just merchants everywhere. And then Josh was saying, like, it was kind of cool because it gave you a picture of what it would have been like back then. You know, we, we, think of, uh, we think of all of the Easter presentations you see in churches. You know, as everybody's wearing past- that pastel-looking, you know, Easter outfits and... and uh, in the very clean environment. This was a very noisy, very crowded environment. And Jesus is walking up during Passover. I mean, this is a huge holiday. Not even I can't even say it's a holiday. It's 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 the marker for the entire year for the Jewish people. Walks up and there are people selling all kind of animals in the courtyard of the temple. What do you think of this? They're not just selling chickens. They're not just selling bunny rabbits. Or They're selling ox, oxen. These things are huge. Can you imagine the absolute smell, the stench, and the sound as people are chiming and chirping in this courtyard trying to sell you something? When I go overseas, I always go to the fish market. I always go to the, to the farmer's markets. I want to see those things. I love hearing the people call out and yell and what they have. And I can't even understand what they're saying. But it's just the energy. Can you imagine? It's no different in this area. Jesus walks into this scene. And he's, just, he's going to be disturbed. By the way, this is nothing new. Every Passover People took advantage of the holiday and descended. And by the way, there's nothing new in Scripture. Old Testament and Zechariah, look at the back half of this verse. Zechariah 14.21 says this, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So Jesus is about to react. Let's go to verse 15. Let's go to the wedding. And so Jesus is reacting here and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Those qu- that, that, by the way, when they're, they're quoting, zeal for your house will consume me, they're quoting David in Psalm 69, verse 9. But Ariel, if you will, go back to verse 15. He's making a whip of cords. This is not an angry reaction of walking in and kicking a chair. This is Jesus looking around, and then he, what he does, he reacts and he responds. You don't see that often. Road rage, most people have road rage, they react. There wasn't a response. 
Her response is different. He reacts and then responds. What he does, he reacts in his anger and then responds by what? Diffusing the anger? No. Sitting down and actually taking the time to make a whip. There are times in my life I can't imagine what it looked like and this was one. I can't imagine this Jesus who children ran up to. I can't imagine Jesus who would walk up to a prostitute. I can't imagine the Jesus that would, would do so many things. But I cannot imagine Jesus angrily sitting down and kneading and nodding a whip. And making a whip. He's about to do something. What he's about to do is not forceful. I mean, it was forceful, it was not cruel. It doesn't say he hurt anyone. And I want you to picture this population of Jerusalem that we know conservatively, we can say is 200,000 at this time. At Passover, 1 million. 1 million people in that city, thousands in that courtyard, 300 estimated temple guards. 300. There was a platform where the Roman soldiers overlooked and if necessary would send a signal to have a Roman garrison come in the event there was a mob or there was a riot. The reason I'm stating all of this is because in my mind this is miraculous. Jesus goes through and cleanses the temple. He goes through, he runs out the oxen you just you imagine one person trying to rent out one huge cow or one huge ox. I pulled in last night to my house. There were four cows at the gate, and I, I tried getting in, tried getting in. They kept trying to get out. I had to call the people in my house to come. Like, you got to help me out. I can't get in my own home. I'm thinking, this man ran out cattle. He tipped over chairs, tables, yelled for thousands of people to leave. No one does anything. 300 temple guards watching this man. Surely they can overpower him. All it takes is for one sound of a, of a trumpet from the platform of the Roman soldier. A Roman garrison would have come. Are you starting to see the miraculous event that happened? In scripture you're going to see where they tried to arrest Jesus and Jesus disappeared. In this case, the people disappeared. This is a remarkable scene. And so here, verse 18, so the Jews, remember whenever John writes the Jews, he's talking about the enemy of Christ. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us? Jesus knows they don't need more signs. They need a pure heart. But it's interesting. What's, they, they don't walk up to him and say, how dare you? They know what he just did was miraculous. What signs do you show us? Verse 19. Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying something more important than the temple. Here He is saying, I am the temple. He looks at those purification buckets. He says, I am all you need for purity. 
when he looks at the wine that's run out from the bridegroom, he says, I am the bridegroom. And whose fountain will never run dry. And he walks into a temple and he says, this temple is not the temple I'm here to proclaim. I am the temple. Jesus is identifying himself and he's identifying our actions. He did this because he wanted people to look within. Look what your church has become. Look what's happened. And so we wonder, what would people do if they walked into a church and saw different churches operating the way they do? What would he do? What would Jesus do? Well, I think there's room in all of our churches and all of our hearts in here. What would he do? Our first thought when we think of what would Jesus do in a church is to look past our own sins. See, Jesus, watch this now. Think about this. The person who thinks, man, what would Jesus do if he came to Creekside? I'll tell you what, he'd kick her out, he'd kick him in, and he'd just start doing these things, right? He would overturn us for what we're doing. But you know what's interesting? We look past our own life. What would he do to us? He has us reflect to say, what do you need to clean out of your temple? What do you need to eradicate? What do you need to move on from? It wasn't until later that the disciples would remember what he said. Watch in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, a little backstory here. Theologians all across the spectrum... David, I should have asked your opinion on this one. Uh, people from all over the place in, writing, in reading scripture, there are people that argue that there were two cleansings of the temples. The cleansing of the temple that we see in the other synoptic gospels would have happened later. Was this another cleansing of the temple or was John writing this in a non-chronological order? We don't know. But I just want to throw that out to you. But so in this particular case, John's recording this part where he says, you know, I, man, do I remember when he said at that courtroom hearing just before Jesus was crucified, he said, when they brought him up on charges and he said, he said he would tear down the temple and he would build it up in three days and everyone laughed and the disciples at that moment got it. I remember when he cleansed the temple, he was talking about his temple. The verses close with this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Remember we talked earlier about faith based on miracles and it's not a great faith. It can be emotional. If you just think, oh wow, I saw a wonderful thing and I'm going to believe Jesus says, I need you to believe on more than just what you can sense on emotion. I need you to believe and walk with me through reading the word of God, through being obedient in prayer, through just, not through works, but just by a relationship. But in this case, for many believed when they saw the signs he was doing and what was Jesus' response. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. 
We have a God that knows exactly what's on your internet browser and still pursues you. We have a God that knows exactly what you thought or what you lusted with or what God knows exactly those things and he still pursues you. He still wants to call you a brother and a sister. He still wants to cleanse the temple of those things that have come into your life and started to set up shop. And he wants to tear those chairs down. And he wants to flip those tables. And he wants to run out anything that has taken over the temple that God has designed in you and I. That is a remarkable thought. The first miracle was done in the presence of those who loved him. The second was in a temple for those who he would want to love his father. I end with this verse, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-five. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He looks to the religiosity today. He says, on the outward sense, you are clean. But on the inside, you know you're filthy. He looks to us in a different manner. He looks to us and he says this, I want to be inside exactly the the exact place that you will not let anyone in. And I'm going to help you clean it up. Which is why every six weeks when we take the Lord's Supper here, we reflect. When Pastor Jack gets up here and he explains as the way he does so well the need to reflect and to start cleansing the temple. Imagine what we've done. I've been guilty in my life of doing church and forgetting why we did it. I've reluctantly hit enough snooze buttons in my life and dragged myself to church and thought, well, you know, um, I made it. All throughout Scripture, there are times where God says, just, if you want to bring your crumbs, leave them. Your, your weak offerings, leave them. And I think to myself, what would it be like? Ron, if you imagine pulling up to a birthday party that's given in your honor. We tell you, as a matter of fact, Ron, there's going to be a birthday party. This is a, it's a party. We want to honor you. We want to celebrate you. You and Sandy pull up. You, you walk outside. Sure enough, there's every, cars are everywhere. You hear the music. The lights are on. You, you knock on the door. No one comes to the door, but it's probably too loud. So you open the door. You walk in. And man, your music is playing. And everybody is having a great time. But no one's coming up to you. No one's walking up to you. No one's talking to you. And then all of a sudden you turn to Sandy and you think, what if, what if I, I, I think we're at the wrong party. I think I misunderstood this. And then all of a sudden you walk up and sure enough, on the dining room table is a cake. Happy birthday run. Candles all lit. Everybody gathered around and talking, but no one paying you in mind. Then all of a sudden someone gets it. Oh, it's Ron's birthday. And so resoundingly they sing happy birthday, gregariously. And as soon as the song is over, and just when you think it's your party again, everybody's dispersed. And you leave unnoticed. And how many times in churches across the world do we light the candles, and we sing the songs, and we hang the banners, 
and we never met the reason for why we gather. This is why Jesus said, you may say you believe in me, but I cannot entrust myself to you because I know the nature of man. I know that when I leave here, you'll forget me. I want you not just to believe in me. I want you to entrust yourself to me. Because I'm giving everything. I'm doing the hardest part so you can make the easiest decision. I want you to entrust yourself to me because I want to call you my brother and my sister. What a powerful chapter the book of John is. I hope I didn't mess it up. Because as I'm reading these two particular stories and I see them coming together, he has a mission. Not to just impress people at a wedding and not just to clean out a building. He's doing it so that you and I would see the magnificent love, the reckless abandonment of of logic and reasoning that this love would come for you and I. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you, Father, for each and every one of us in here. Lord, there may be some in here who never quite grasped that, Lord, you have been pursuing them. Father, may we absorb and and grasp, Lord, just a, a bit how much you love us, how much you've given up for us, how much you've sacrificed yourself for us. And Lord, I would pray there would be those in here with the courage to simply um, step over to one of us and say, I want to be a brother and sister in Christ. I want to receive the Lord as my Savior. Maybe follow up with baptism. And Father, maybe it's one of those decisions. Somebody wants to say, I just don't want to say I believe. I want to entrust myself to the one who's entrusting himself to me. Father, thank you for this fellowship. Be with us in the next hour in the, in the church meeting after. In Jesus' name we pray. Maybe see it. Well, thank you. And well, it's a privilege to be able to continue the series in the book of John. And uh, we are uh, approaching John chapter 2 today. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 2. To reiterate what Pastor Jack mentioned, and that is that if you're at all available to stay for our, our meeting afterwards, we'd love to have you. Whether you're a member or not a member, it's a good time to just check us out too, you know, and here's some of the inner workings of our church. So I'm excited about being able to present this, this scripture uh, and just want to be upfront with you today that there are two pieces of scripture here. There's, there's two stories being told. Actually, it could, you could technically say three. You know, see what I mean in a minute. There's a wedding at Cana, and there is a uh, there is a cleansing of the temple, and then there is a short little segment of verses that talk about Jesus just not really not really believing men when they say they're wanting to be they're wanting to be believers. So anyway, the reason I'm fusing them together is for one common thread, and you're going to see that as we go throughout the scripture. So there's a few heavy points in here. That if I'm not careful, I'll trip up on. And if I don't, if I don't explain them in, uh, very thoroughly, it may be confusing. So um, bear with me if we just if we hunker down on a few verses and just spend a little bit of time. Uh, let me go ahead and and, um, and again we'll draw our attention to John chapter two. Let me pray for me very quickly, Father. Just uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, Lord you speak through me, make me uh, a vessel for your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, John chapter two, verse one. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Okay, verse 2 reads, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. This is a small wedding. Let's stop right here and explain. It's a small town. Let me put it that way. It's a small town. Everybody had to know each other. Cana, we're talking a few hundred people at best living in this town. This, this city, where the great first semi-public miracle would ever be displayed, is being written in a town that is so obscure and so small. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Okay, this is why I love breaking down these verses. And we think, we think of, of, actually go back to verse 3 if you could, if you would, uh, Ariel. And the w- wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said, They have no wine. Oftentimes when you hear the story being told, it's really this desperate pleading mom running up and saying would you make wine she is in her own jewish motherly sense she is this is culturally what is happening she says they have no wine keep in mind she has a basis for doing this not only earthly wise has she recognized that he's the leader of the family we believe without any really shadow of a doubt that joseph has died before this has happened it's sometime between jesus childhood and, and the moment when jesus inaugurated his ministry joseph had died he had taken on the patriarchal role of the family but you know you know without a shadow of a doubt she had seen some things and so when she shoulders up as this uh jewish woman mother who by the way looks around a crowd and has sympathy on Oh my goodness, this poor family has run out of wine. Simply shoulders up next to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Watch what the next verse says. And we read in verse 4, Jesus says to her, woman. That's a term of endearment, right? (laughs) Woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. What's interesting on this any like a country preacher would say this dog will hunt right here these three ver- the, these th- three lines right here are powerful first woman what does he mean by that is this a derogatory address i mean he's look he doesn't say mother at this point woman i guarantee you if you said woman to your mother you're going to get it. it's uh, no he is he's using this term as best we as best i give you description as if saying the word ma'am you know it's ma'am But what's critical is, we see that he is not addressing her as mother. So you see, the term of endearment here is is interesting. On the cross, he actually says to her, woman, behold your son. So later, while he's dying, he uses the same term. So it's a term of endearment. But then he says, what does this have to do with me? Now here's a parallel I'm going to draw. And if you stop me in the middle of a quote, you're going to think I'm heretical and you're going to throw me out of the church. But hear me. Hear me. This is critical. You hear the full thought. What does this have to do with me? The only other time this is described in Scripture, let me finish the thought, by demons. Demons, when Jesus would interact with them and say, I, uh, and he would start interacting with them and say, what do you have to do with me? We stop, stop coming into my world. Stop strong-arming me. Stop coming into, stop trying to take this power. What does this have to do with me? This is the greatest 
description, I don't want to say the greatest because it's like there probably are some other great verses in there that describe this, but this is a phenomenal verse of a conversation of two worlds. An earthly world, woman. Spiritually, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What hour is he talking about? His crucifixion. And so when he says, woman, what does this have to do? Why are you stepping into my world? Do you see this? I don't want to say it's a conflict, but it's a dichotomy. It, it is, it's a mother, earthly mother, well, earthly in her title of mother, talking to her son. Her son who, by the way, was given to her from heaven. Okay, so not a... This, here's this mom saying, just please, I know, what you, I know what you can do. I know what you can do. Mom, he says, woman... What does this have to do with what I stand for? My my hour hasn't come. And so you see what this means is there's a spiritual journey that's about to start. This woman, Mary, is concerned about a party. Jesus is concerned about something greater. So in this particular case, this uh, and she had every right to, to keep in mind, Jesus, I think, was a little startled at this. There was a, the, the interaction was just, why, why are you doing this? Why, why here? And again, I'm not, we don't want to throw Mary under the bus. She's being a good Jewish friend mother, right? She's looking out, oh my goodness, the, bri- the, the bridegroom, the groom, is responsible for everything. She's thinking of his mother. Jewish tradition is that. There is a lot of family connection. There's a, uh, some of you come from Jewish roots. You know what sometimes Jewish... Uh, hysteria can look like if things aren't going well. I had a friend, I have a friend who's a, um, he's a, he's a paramedic and he, he had a, we were at a restaurant and somebody was having a reaction to something and, and he went in, checked it out and he was speaking Spanish and he came back to me and he said, no, she's going to be fine. We, you know, we called an ambulance, but she'll be okay. It's just mostly HHS. I was like, what's what's HHS? He said, hysterical Hispanic syndrome. And I'm like, I've never even heard of that. He goes, yeah, it's in our culture, Jake. You just have to live with it. To understand the culture, she is genuinely seeking out. Just, just, just do, look at verse 5. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. You can take that as any which way you want. You can do it. Well, frustratingly, do whatever he tells you or do whatever he tells you. Nonetheless, Jesus is stiff-arming her spiritually here. But Jesus is concerned with one relationship. And from this moment on, there's one relationship. John 5 verse 17 says this. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. So what he's saying is, whatever my father wants me to do, I'm going to do. Jesus is going to be very clear that there is no special click. There's no upper echelon of decision makers. There is no group that is more special than the other. As a matter of fact, what he's going to do is differentiate his family from himself. Now, if you're a loving mama right now, you're looking at this thinking, what would it be like to be Mary? Is this some kind of a rejection? No. You remember, she is looking at him, and he is looking at her differently. He, she is looking now at a Savior, and he is looking at her now as a sinner who needs a Savior. Watch these verses as he starts to 
I don't want to say divorce himself, but segregate himself from his family. But he does it for a reason. Watch this. Okay, here we are. Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. Look at these verses. And he said these things. This is a... Um, it's another story that's going on. It gives a description of how he's viewing a family. And he said these things. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. That's a very descriptive way of saying, Blessed is your mama. And probably a way you wouldn't use in today's vernacular. Blessed is, our, is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Wait a minute. Are you telling me he just put someone before his mother? Just bragged. Somebody just bragged on his mother. He says, no, no. Blessed more is the person who hears the word of God and can keep it. Look what I mean in the next verse. Mark 3, 31 through 35. And his mother, Jesus' brother, mother and brothers came to him. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Oh, by by the way, stop right here. You're thinking, they're going to get his attention. His family's outside the door. They send send word, hey, we're outside. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, oh, your mother and your brothers, they're outside, and they're seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, this is cool. Here are my mother." And my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is not a rejection of his family. This is an invitation to you and I. Do you see the power in these verses that he looks at us and he says, You, as a believer in me, are my brother and my sister and my mother. You are my family. I'm engrafting myself to you, you to me. And once we begin to grasp this, we start to see why Jesus talks the way he does. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is you. This is you. Jesus said this. Jesus said, if you come to me, it will be by faith, not by family. Translated today, if you come to Jesus, it will be by faith, not by culture or tradition. Oftentimes, some of you have family that are serving in the Middle East in, uh, as, as missionaries. I would tell you, physically, that's a harrowing experience. You could be arrested, you could be jailed. Can I tell you another difficult experience in which to minister would be the Bible Belt. You go up into Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, and you walk through that whole beautiful area of just what we call the, the Deep South, and I have friends that are ministers that struggle, that say, Jake, you have no idea what I deal with. Everybody in the room, if I go to a public school, will say, oh, I know Jesus is. Yeah, I've accepted him. Absolutely. They are coming by culture, by tradition. You know how hard it is to be able to pierce that and to get into the inner workings of a person. This is what Jesus is trying to, this is why he's segregating his family and saying, no, 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 no. There's no special group. There's no special clique. They don't get special privileges. They don't sit in the front of the church. No, none of that. For my brothers, my sisters, and my mother are my believers. Let's look at uh, what happens in Cana. Go with me, verse 6. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Okay, stop right here. These are, these are, this is not, by the way, what sometimes, and I'm always knocking Easter presentations and Christmas presentations. It's just when I was a new believer, I thought that's how it worked. I guess I thought everybody walked around in pastel-colored Hebrew outfits too, you know. But, but, but there was like always the scene of like, uh, you know, the mom comes up begging Jesus and, you know, the Scandinavian Jesus in the blue sash picks up a, a pitcher of water, pours it into the, the, the oh, a thing of water and it becomes wine. No, he's interacting with a crowd. He looks over at the, he looks over at, 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 he tells the servants just to dip, dip the water out of here. And these are barrels. Collectively, we're talking about 150 gallons. Oh, drinking water? No. This is water for purification. You can take that one of two ways. Religious rite of like, oh, for purifying yourself. And it's also cleaning water. It's ba- this is what they would clean themselves with. This is not this is not what we would think of as, forget sanitary, this is nasty water. He says, oh, dip it in this water and pour out the wine. And give it, by the way, to the master of the feast. You call it the maitre d', call it the service assistant, you call him whatever. This is, go, give it to this person, he is going to handle it. So at this point, we start, we start, to, we start to look and see, you had a, first a conversation, Jesus says, woman, don't come into my world. But now he's in this world. He's about to perform a miracle. Semi-public. This is not a huge crowd. We're talking, uh, most of the town was there. So I don't know. Guesstimated a hundred? A couple hundred? It really would have been more than a few hundred. If even out-of-town visitors came in. Three-day wedding? Probably. Because they weren't wealthy to have a seven-day wedding. And then he makes symbolism of those purification barrels. He says, dip it out of that. Because I am now what makes you pure. I'm sick of religiosity. I'm going to be sick of these displays of water barrels. I'm going to, I am over this. This is not going to impress me. Throughout all the gospels we see, Jesus is saying, this religiosity is done and it's starting now. Do you remember when the disciples walked into a synagogue one time? They walked into to pray. They go to service, and the, the Pharisees were outside. They're like, what are you doing, Jesus? Your, your disciples just walk in without washing their hands. Do you see where that started? He's like, this purification, man, I am what makes you pure. I am it. And then the, then the other the symbolism doesn't stop. He then says this, I am not a bridegroom that's going to run out of water. I'm not going to run out of wine. I mean, I'm not going to run out of this. I am going to offer to you a new wine. I give to you a new, a new sense of purification. I give to you a wine that will never stop flowing. A wine that will wash you clean. I am going to be one who never runs dry. Never disappoints. The role of the bridegroom was to pay for everything. And I want you to imagine, now keep in mind, a wedding, when I say a wedding was a big deal, life was mundane. It was boring. I'm not trying to insult third world countries by saying, have you ever been overseas to a very poor area? But the days are really, really long. 
I mean, they're really long. And life is hard. People are working hard. This wedding is a big deal. People have looked forward to this. The embarrassment has come on this bridegroom. Now, stop right here and make a pause. John, in some of the last recorded words of John, the Baptist, not John writing the book, John the Baptist is going to be found in John chapter 3. Look at what he says in verses 29 through 30 about Jesus being the bridegroom. Okay, this is important. We, we, We jump to this part. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What he's saying is this. He's talking to himself in the third person. Basically, he's saying, I am the friend of the bridegroom. The the bride is the church. He has come for the church. And I'm just a friend, and I'm okay with that. In everything in which he does, I am less, and he is greater, and I'm fine with that. Jesus knows he is, he is the bridegroom that will not fail. He will not fall short. And his life-giving wine he has provided for our life will never, ever run out. Now, verse 9. The story continues. When the master of the feast tastes the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, like, can you imagine the shock, by the way, of this groom? Come here, come here. And he's thinking, oh no. He's probably been watching how much people are drinking. He goes over to the master of the feast, the guy in charge. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then you bring out the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And here it is. Watch this formula, broken down two ways. Here, And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I'll come back to that verse, finish in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Go back to verse 11, if you would, Ariel. This is the first of a sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Watch this. Two-folded formula. And manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Watch this. Here, 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 here it is. Jesus shows his glory people believe in him. Jesus shows his glory. People believe in him. And then you're going to see it flopped. You see, here it is. Where there is glory, there is faith. But next I would say this. Where there is faith, you will see his glory. See if this makes sense. People see his glory and then they believe. But Jesus says, if you believe, you will see my glory. Do you remember when he found Philip under the fig tree? And Philip goes, man, you saw, what a miracle. I believe. And then Jesus says, you believe? You're going to see things you will never, ever dream of. In order to see his glory, we have to believe. And in all this, this time, that wherever there is glory, there is faith. You see this constantly works through the Gospels. And so, he saved the day. He saves the day, but then we walk into a second story. And I want to walk you into the story, but I want to walk you in gently. He's just come from, come from a wedding at Cana. Small group. Semi-public miracle. First miracle recorded here. And now he's about to walk into a temple. He's walking not into Cana of a few hundred people. He is walking into Jerusalem. 
Paint the picture of Jerusalem. Population, conservatively, 200,000. It could be higher, could be whatever. But I'd say most agree around 200,000. It's Passover. Jesus has not missed a Passover. Passover is the greatest celebration. The population of Jerusalem, minimum, minimum at Passover would be one million people. Jesus is not around people he loved, people he knew, people where he couldn't go wrong. He's about to walk into the lion's den. One million people at Passover. And the reason I'm blending these two stories together is for one common reason. Jesus has one focal point, and that's his father's business. That is it. This is why he stiff-armed and he said, Woman, this is why are you coming into my world? You know the hour hasn't come. Now he's walking into a city and he's about to say, I'm bringing my world to you. And I'm not real happy. Look with me at, at, at the, um, as where we go into verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. This is not a new thing. Some of you who came from Acacia Grove went to Israel. How many of you have been to Israel? How many of you guys? Good grief. <laughs> Will I ever go to Israel? Will you take me one day? I can't. Uh, so, I, again, I keep thinking, like, one day I'm going to go. One day I'm going to go. But everybody tells me when you go, it's like, you know... It's odd because you think you're going to be in this reverent area, right? Josh was telling me this. He said, you walked in this one street. He thought it was going to be really like holy and reverent. He said, there are people, I mean, there's like a Pepsi truck over here. They're selling falafel and hummus over here. I mean, sounds delicious, but I mean, it's just, it was just this mad circus. And he said, you know, it's really crazy. It really gave you an indication of what it was like. I mean, this culture is like any other culture. You go to market, it's loud. It's loud. We don't have, they don't have Publix in most countries. You go to the fish markets, the, the fruit stands, and people are yelling and hawking their goods. Jesus walks into the city, and man, Passover is alive. There is not an empty room. Before Airbnb hit, everybody is renting every room they can, every square inch. Jesus is walking through, and he sees in the courtyard of the temple, several acres here, in this courtyard, Thousands of people selling, hawking their goods. We're not talking just chickens, bunny rabbits. We're talking oxen. These things are huge. I pulled in last night and could not get in the gate because I have these cows. And I'm thinking, I mean, I'm pulling in and I'm, I'm calling Mike. I think Cameron, you saved the day. You pulled in and helped me get, get through the gate. My cows are trying to get out. And I'm thinking, what he's about to do is deal with not just the oxen, not just the money changers, not just the people, the greed. This is nothing new. This has been going on a while. People have forgotten the meaning of Passover. People are making money on other Jews over Passover. Money changers are getting this huge exorbitant fee. Yeah, you want money to pay the temple tax? That little town script you have? No, it's not worth anything here. And they start charging them extra money. Jesus sees this. By the way, Jesus didn't see it for the first time. Look at this verse in the Old Testament that saw this and prophesied a long time ago. Zechariah 14, 21. Look at the last part of the verse. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. 
But Jesus is about to react. Go back to the verse, uh, the verse in John 2, verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out, all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make, here it is, ready? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In verse 17, do you see that quotation, zeal for your house will consume me? They're quoting David in Psalm 69 verse 9 when David is saying this. So they're quoting Old Testament scripture. Okay, this was forceful, but it was not cruel. And there are many types of belief that there were two different, um, there, there are people who believe, let me stop and give this, uh, this synopsis here. There are two cleansings of the temple that look to be recorded. Some people say, throughout the Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? John is written separately. The other three Gospels are synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, seen together. They saw it together, and so they recorded. So John is writing of a cleansing of the temple. The synoptic Gospels, the other guys are writing of a cleansing of the temple. Two schools of thought. One, this is a different cleansing of the temple. And some people will say, chronologically, John just put it in there. But to think it's a separate one, but there it is. I just want to throw it out. If you, if you don't know it for fact, you don't preach it as fact, right? So there you go. Just, we respect that. Jesus, there's a lot of imagery in my mind about Jesus that the children ran to. There's imagery in my mind of him rescuing a prostitute, an adulterer. There's a Jesus in so many scenes that are magnificent. But I cannot imagine in my mind a Jesus sitting in a chair braiding a whip. You've heard of people that react and don't respond. They teach you this in anger management. You know, don't respond. I mean, don't react. You respond. The response is different than reaction. He's responding. Ready for this? He's responding to react. How many, how many times do you hear road rage of like, oh yeah, well, you know, I thought about it and then an hour later I went and I got the jerk off the road. No. It's a, you think people react. What he's doing is sitting there tying a knot, braiding a whip, stitch after stitch, sitting there angrily making this thing happen to go in and cleanse this temple. And then he goes in and he starts cleansing the temple. The reason I would say this is miraculous. Thousands of people. I have a hard time moving a a fat cow from my gate. He's moving oxen. There are estimated 300 temple guards. 300 temple guards there. These were thugs. These were, these, were, these were men who beat people up if they didn't pay the temple tax. I'm not stereotyping all temple guards, but they did not have a good reputation. Not only were there 300 temple guards, not only were there thousands of people. And go, by the way, go into a Jewish merchant and start flipping their coins and taking the money and see if they don't react. <laughs> on top of that, on the hill, on a platform, is our Roman guards who are watching, who either have a bell or a trumpet, that the first sign of any insurrection, they will call the Roman garrison to come down. And we saw that happen later in the Bible. 
all this is happening, he sits there and he braids this whip and he goes in and he takes the place. He takes it over. He flips the tables, he runs people out and this is why I see this as a practical miracle. Jesus is doing this for a reason. He is cleansing this house because it's his father's house. Jesus is making clear a statement. He is saying, this home is my dad's home. And now he's about to make an illustration that this temple is going to be brought down. And there's a new temple coming. The water purification, remember those buckets? They're done. They're over. Remember the water turned to wine? I am the new wine. And now by what he is saying in the next verses, I am the temple. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus knows they don't need more signs in a pure heart. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he's speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying something here more important than the temple here. He is saying this, I am the temple. I am that temple now and forevermore. I'm it. Oh, by the way, um, this is why we take Lord's table every six weeks and we evaluate ourselves. Jesus is casting judgment on this area to say, look within and look what you become and look what's happening. This is why every six weeks we walk through and when Pastor Jack walks us through as eloquently and masterfully as he does as to the magnificence of the Lord's Supper, we see it's for a reason. For you and I to look within. And ask ourselves, what would Jesus want to overturn in our life? So many times, you know what happened is we preach this and we think, what kind of church, what would Jesus do to our church? I'll tell you what the control freak thinks. I know what he'd do to this church. He'd do this. He'd turn over this. He would take this. He would take this church and he'd turn it over. The reality is he'd start with you and I. He would come into our life and he would say, what is it that we need to take out? What is it that we need to overturn? Why? A judgmental God who wants to come in and smite you? No. A God who says, I want to call you my brother and my sister. This is the same God who knows what your, where your internet browser has been. This is the same God who knows the history of your thoughts and your lust and your, and your, and your insecurities and your failings. This God knows that. And he wants to pierce it. And he wants to walk in. He says, I want to turn these things over. Not that you're keeping to yourself, but they're keeping you from me. And I want you and I to walk as a brother. I want you to be my brother and sister by believing in me. That is the reason he is coming into the scene. And he's coming into this place and he's turning these tables upside down. And he says, I am the temple now. And he does that by conviction in us through the Holy Spirit. Which is why before we take the Lord's table, some Sundays we look at ourselves and think, Lord, what is it that I need cleaned out? And then verse 22, by the way, the, ladies, the disciples, by the way, when they would remember when Jesus said this temple is going to be brought down and rebuilt in three days. He was brought to court. He was brought in a, in a I mean, a, 
a trial was it was a joke. And they brought him up on charges, and part of the charges were, oh, by the way, he said he would knock down the temple. The disciples, verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they had believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here it is. Jesus knows exactly what is in your life. Jesus knows exactly what is keeping you from worshiping him. He's not angrily walking into your temple. He's lovingly walking into your world and saying, I know the doubts you have and I want to take them over. But what do we do? We make a fool's bargain and we start trusting in man who can offer us nothing eternally and yet we, we ignore the God that offers us everything eternally. And so we make bargains. We make deals. We start changing money. We start selling things in our own soul. We become less and less and we start believing those lies. And this is why we are scared fleshly to think, what if God made a whip and walked into my life? He walked into the life of that temple to cleanse up the religion of the day in the attempt to hold you down from keeping you, that you could, the thought that you could have a relationship with him. It's critical. He's cleansing this temple because it's his father's house. If you take that thought further, he wants to cleanse your temple because you are his house. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. He says you are of greater worth than that temple that was there. He said, oh, this temple, by the way, he'll later say, it's going to be gone. It'll never see its day. And sure enough, when, Rome, when it was sacked by Rome in uh, years, was it 70 AD, I think, it was gone, torn under. He said, your temple will never be torn under. Verse 23, as we start to walk to the end of this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. You catch this? Does this sound familiar if you were here last week? Many believed in his name when he saw the signs he was doing. Jesus was never impressed with faith that was done by signs. He was, he was not a magician. He was not somebody who did a, 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 a row on the show. A, a show on a row. A show on a road. You know what I mean. It wasn't somebody who would simply say, this is why I, I want to show you what I can do so you can believe in me. He knew that if you believe based on a miracle, your faith would just be weak. He says, I want you to come to me. I want you to, I want you to, I want you to come to me and believe in me. And we walk together. We live together harmoniously through reading scripture, through praying, through having that relationship, through fellowshipping. This is what I want. And so Jesus knows, ah, these people, they're going to just have a miraculous sight and they're just going to have a weak faith. So what does he say? Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Wait a minute, are you telling me Jesus did not entrust himself? That many people were coming to the Lord? Watch this. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So here's, here's our thought. These people are saying, I believe. I believe, I believe, I believe. And Jesus is saying, I don't entrust myself to you. I mean, you can say you believe in me, but until you really trust in me, until you go beyond wearing a cross on your chest, until you go beyond carrying a Bible to a place once every once in a while, until you entrust in me, if you, I have, I have done everything I can do, 
Jesus is saying, to make it easy for you. I have done the hardest thing at the sacrifice to make it the easiest choice for you. And what do we say as a society? We want more signs. God, give us another sign. Sign Sign-based faith is going to be weak. There is nowhere in scripture a health and wealth prosperity uh, promises ever given. Given that box and sure enough everything, the mortgage is going to be paid. No. Jesus is saying, I can't entrust myself to you. Jesus is saying to this, to, to, to you and I, I, I want you to be different than the religion of the day. The first miracle was done in the presence of whom Jesus loved. Did you catch that? The first miracle was done in the presence of whom Jesus loved. This miraculous sign in the temple was done for those he wanted to love his father. He did that one for us. Matthew 23, 25. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Here's how a works-based theology thinks. You look at that and think, oh man, what do I have to do to clean up my cup? That is what they would have thought then. But now I want to paint a picture of a Jesus that said, the water barrels are not necessary. The wine will never run out. The temple out of stone is not needed. And if he said all those things you do not need, I'll tell you else what else he tells you. You do not need to be the dishwasher of your spiritual life. I have come to clean your cup. I have come that you would be my brother and my sister. I have come to show you you are more important than me to the, to the family that was identified with me. I have come to show you what true life is. But yet if we're not careful, we get ingrained back to what we constantly need to do to save ourselves. Imagine, Pat, imagine we threw a, a birthday party for you. Imagine this is... Um, you know, we said, Pat, I want Amy to drop you off at the house. You guys come on over and we want you to we're gonna throw a huge party. You pull up and you're thinking, man, this is it. I mean, cars are everywhere. People you recognize. You, you walk at the door, you knock, you ring the del- doorbell, nobody comes up. And finally, you just think, well, I guess it's too loud. You just walk on in. You walk on in the house and sure enough, the party's going. The music's blasting. People are talking. People are laughing. Amy comes up to you and you say, I, Amy... Is this the right party? Nobody said a thing to me. Oh yeah, I'm sure this is it. I mean, there's a cake. Oh sure enough, you look over there. Happy birthday, Pat. This must be it. And everybody comes together. Come on, let's sing happy birthday. And you're thinking, oh, there it is. Everybody's just playing cool. And here comes the happy day. Sing gregariously. You blow out the candles. And you look up. And everybody's dispersed back to their conversations. And you walk out that door and no one even noticed you were there. And I wonder how many times God has watched the same thing over and over and over again. We light the candles. We sing the songs. 
We throw up the banner. And yet we never pay Him any mind or attention. There is but one way to be pure before God. It was the hardest way for Jesus. It was the easiest way for you. He has said the symbolism is gone. It's done. It's over. You are my temple. You are my brother. You are my sister. And I will come and run out anyone who so much as degrades you. It makes you feel second. It makes you feel at a loss. It makes you feel like you are someone other than mine. A rescue and savior just doesn't save you at salvation. He rescues you daily from your own internal battles of doubt and insecurity. Knowing religion would never fix that, he has come to say, I will stop it. What a promise. What a thought. To imagine that God loves us that much. Next week, Shale shares in John chapter 3, and we break open to those words, for God so loved the world that he pierced. I'm thinking about it. He pierced all those barriers that religion set up intentionally or unintentionally to keep that message from coming out. And today, all those barriers to keep that message from coming out. What a story. What a gospel this is. What an amazing Bible that we have. What an amazing Savior that loves us. So some of you maybe have never made that decision to say, I want to be a I want to be a believer, not just culturally, not just traditionally. I, I want to believe, uh, be a believer in Jesus Christ. There is not one person in here anointed specially to tell you how to do that other than God. Jesus has said this, I died as a sacrifice for you because you were a sinner, just like Mary. I've come to make you pure because those barrels and religion cannot make you pure anymore. And I've come to take over your body for you to surrender your temple to me. Because everyone wants you, but no one will love you. And no one will pursue you like I do. That Savior is waiting for you. If you want to make that decision, there's not one of us in here. The friend that brought you, or the friend that you met, that is a believer here, or one of us as a pastor, or one of us would love to walk you through the shortest, simplest process that will be eternal in consequence. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the journey in this book. Lord, we thank you for the truth you have for us. That, Lord, we can gather together in here and recognize that we're not perfect. But, Lord, you pursue us in ways we can't even imagine. Father, I thank you for opportunities we have to gather together in here and teach the Word of God like this. Thanks for anyone in here, Lord, that may have heard very clearly the gospel for the first time in their own life. And Lord, we just pray for them to have the courage to take that step and, Lord, entrust themselves to you. To take that step and say to someone in here that can help guide them and walk them to salvation in you. That, Lord, you would take that person and you would, they would see that you have entrusted yourself to them.
Father, we thank you for souls that are saved, but we also thank you for souls that are recharged and encouraged. For any man or woman in here who may have walked in feeling beaten up. The Father, they felt like they could ever break away from the role of their family of being told they weren't the smartest, the prettiest, or the best. The Father, you have made a new family. Father, I thank you for those who walk in here and Jesus say, I just, God, I, I didn't know you would do this for me. Continually to encourage our church one person at a time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.